Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D, and today I'll be bringing you part one of the case of James Whitaker in South Bloomingville, Ohio. Let's get right to it. James Thomas Whitaker Jr., better known to his friends and family as Jim or Jimmy, was born in December of 1963 in Columbus, Ohio, where he eventually met and married the love of his life, Diane. Together, Jim and Diane built a beautiful life, eventually welcoming four girls who all shared J names like their dad, Jody, Julie, Jennifer, and Jessica. Now, Jim was a man's man. He loved hunting, fishing, car racing, and tinkering around on all kinds of projects. With a wife and four daughters, Jim was the lone man of the house, but that didn't seem to bother him a bit. He embraced being a girl dad, but maybe not in the way you might think. According to later court testimony from his daughter, Julie, Jim taught his girls how to do all the things he was so passionate about. He took them hunting and into the great outdoors with him, teaching them everything he knew. That was another thing about Jim. He liked teaching people things like how to tear down and rebuild cars. He was welcoming and helpful, especially after his dream cabin in the woods was complete. The year was 1997, and Jim built a cabin on a hill tucked out in the woods in South Bloomingville. It was almost like something out of a fairy tale a large tree-lined property with gardens that Diane tended to and a huge garage for all of Jim's projects. Jim had the garage, but the cabin was Diane's, and she loved it, and so did everybody else. The Whitaker cabin was the place to be. Jim always allowed people to come over to use his tools or garage with a warm smile and a welcoming hand. There were large parties for family and friends, and Jim and Diane were proud of the life they had built for their girls. The years flew by and soon the Whitaker girls were all grown with families of their own. Jim and Diane were still doing life together. They were grandparents and enjoying this next phase of their lives. And then it all came to a crashing halt. Diane was diagnosed with cancer and in 2017, when she was only 54 years old, cancer took her away from everyone who knew and loved her. Her girls, the grandkids, and Jim. They had spent 35 years together, but now she was gone. With Diane's passing, the charm of her little cabin on the hill seemed to fade. The gardens were no longer tended and Jim was lost without her. His girls helped out and came and stayed and took him to appointments and tried their best. But Jim missed his Diane and life wasn't the same anymore. As the years passed after his wife's untimely death, Jim's mental health deteriorated and everyone around him took note of that, but perhaps nobody noticed as much as his mom, Diana. Diana had always been close with her son and the two spoke nearly every day. That was until roughly three years after Diane died. 
I know it's probably a little confusing since the names are so similar, so just in case you didn't catch it the first time, Diane is Jim's late wife, and Diana, with the extra A, is his mom. I don't know if that clarifies things or not, but as I was saying, Diana and Jim spoke nearly every day, or so they did until early July of 2020. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. According to court testimony, Diana spoke to her son on the 3rd of July. And then crickets. Days passed and Diana tried to reach Jim to no avail. As each day passed, she grew more and more concerned. It wasn't like Jim to go that long with no contact. I mean, a day or three while he was out in the woods, maybe. But a little over a week had gone by and nothing. She had left voicemails, but now Jim's mailbox was full. Something felt off, so Diana called her granddaughter Julie and told her that she had been trying to get in touch with her dad, but he wasn't answering the phone. It was the evening of July 11, 2020. When Diana called Julie, she was upset, so while she was still on the phone with her grandmother, she opened her Facebook Messenger and sent a message to one of her dad's longtime neighbors and friend of the family, Carmela. Carmela's house was just about a mile and a half up the road from Jim's, but Carmela hadn't heard from Jim either. So Julie hung up the phone with her grandma and began calling her dad. She called him repeatedly throughout the evening, but his phone went to voicemail and that voicemail, of course, was full. Over the next few days, she tried calling Jim, but still got nothing. She didn't panic at first, though, thinking maybe the phone was just dead or he didn't have service. He did live out in the sticks and knew his way around the woods. Maybe he was just out of reach. The days continued to pass and Jim's voicemail remained full. Julie was now living in Columbus, which was about an hour drive from her father's house in South Bloomingville, and she had just basically totaled her car. She wanted to head down to her dad's to check on him, but with a busted car, she was stuck. So she reached out to a friend she'd known since the sixth grade, Keith Strickland, to get help fixing her car. Keith was someone who not only knew Julie, but her dad and the rest of her family. He lived nearby the Whitaker home and frequently went over to Jim's garage to work on his vehicles. In fact, according to his later court testimony, he had last seen Jim on the 4th of July when he went to do just that. He had gone over to Jim's garage to work on the suspension of his vehicle. Jim was there along with another man, Michael Dixon, and his 18-year-old daughter, Melody. Now, Michael had long been known to the Whitaker family. Well, kind of. As it turned out, he was sort of a friend of a friend's kid. And I say kid, but at this point, he was a full-grown man, but that's besides the point. You see, Jim's best friend was related to a man named Frank Species. Frank was married to Michael Dixon's mother, Denise, and though he wasn't his biological child, Frank had raised Michael. 
The Whitaker family and the species Dixon clan all moved from Columbus to the South Bloomingville area around the same time. And South Bloomingville is small, like really small. They were bound to know each other even if Jim's best friend hadn't been related to them. Anyhow, as they were growing up, the Whitakers knew Denise and Frank more than they knew their son Michael, but over the last two years, they had gotten to know Michael Dixon really well. 40-year-old Michael had been living with Jim Whitaker for the past two years. He moved in roughly a year after Jim had lost his wife. It seemed like the perfect plan. Michael Dixon was down on his luck and had nowhere to go. And Jim was lonely without his wife. He also had a few health problems and couldn't work quite the way he always had. So for Jim, it seemed like a win-win situation. Michael would not only be someone he could talk to, but he could help Jim around the house. And for Michael, he had somewhere to stay. Eventually, Michael would move his daughter, 18-year-old Melody Dixon, in as well. And by this point, Melody had been living there approximately six months. Back to the story. Keith Strickland made his way to Columbus to help Julie Whitaker get her car patched up enough to drive out to check on her dad. By this point, she was desperate to get over there for herself and see what was going on. She and Keith literally zip-tied things together and got the car in good enough working condition to make it to South Bloomingville. The night before she left, she was talking to her grandmother, Diana, when Diana brought up a note Keith Strickland had told her about that was found in her father's house, supposedly written by her father. Diana didn't know the exact details, so when Julie caught wind of this mysterious note, she immediately called Keith and asked him why in the hell she didn't know nothing about a note and why he hadn't sent it to her yet. Keith texted Julie three photos of the note. It was written on notepad paper. Like the kind of notepad that has the magnetic back that you would stick on a fridge to jot down a grocery list or to-do list. And I shit you not, the words printed at the top of every page, like the actual design, read, I make cleaning sexy, with an image of a maid holding a feather duster on the bottom right corner. Ironic, considering the state of the cabin once Julie arrived. We're not there yet, but believe me, we'll get there. Moving on, written on two pages of the I Make Cleaning Sexy notepad was this. Hey, so maybe I thought we all cared about each other, but I didn't know what I was doing. I care for you, Mike and Melody, and if we became of a hour, your audio didn't skip it, really said if we became of a hour, continuing on, if we became of a hour, would be better than things have been. But I seen you, Mike, as someone I was looking out for. Then Melody, I fell in love with not knowing how things were between you. She showed me the woman she is, being lovely and wanting to give a woman caring and love, not thinking of her wanting you and what you have for each other. This is where I should probably remind you that Melody was Michael Dixon's 18-year-old biological daughter. Shit was getting weird real quick. The final page of the note read, I am at my end of this life, hurting lonely without anyone. I didn't think I would matter every again. I'm right. I don't. I'm giving my life so that your pain goes away. Love, Jimbo, and then a squiggly line under Jimbo. Never mind the fact that this seemed to be some hills have eyes love triangle. The handwriting and the way the letter was phrased was nothing like anything Jim Whitaker would or had ever written. 
I'm going to be frank here. Jim Whitaker was literate, and he definitely knew what punctuation was. Now would be a good time to tell you that this note contained not the first piece of punctuation, and letters were capitalized completely at random. And Jimbo? Who in the fuck was Jimbo? Never in the history of ever had anyone, much less himself, ever referred to Jim Whitaker as Jimbo. Jim, Jimmy, or his legal name, James. But Jimbo? Jimbo didn't make not even one lick of sense. The following morning, Keith Strickland, Julie Whitaker, and her grandmother Diana headed to South Bloomingville to get to the bottom of what in the fresh hell was happening. It was July 25, 2020. The trio stopped off at Jim's neighbor Carmela's before heading over to the cabin, where they got some reinforcements in the form of two of Carmela's sons, Dustin and Craig. The three became five and they headed to Jim's cabin at 23605 Chestnut Grove Road. Julie Whitaker walked in the front door of her father's home where she found Michael and Melody Dixon. And from the moment Julie stepped inside her childhood home, the scene was unnerving to say the very least. 18-year-old Melody was walking in circles, talking and laughing to herself while holding a crossbow in the living room. When Julie asked, what the fuck are you doing with that? Melody simply stated that it was hers. But Melody and her little crossbow weren't Julie's concern. So Julie directed her attention to Michael Dixon, standing face to face with him, looking him directly in his eyes as she told him they needed to talk. And Michael Dixon looked at his daughter Melody and said, don't say anything. Julie asked Michael where her father was and he told her that Jim had taken off and went somewhere. Where? He didn't know. How? Since Jim didn't have a running car at the moment, he didn't know. With who? Michael Dixon claimed he didn't have a clue because he wasn't there when he left. Remember when I told you the Mary Maid notebook was ironic and we'd get to that part? Well, we're here. As Julie Whitaker looked around the house, it was trashed. Sure, her father might have been a bit of a pack rat, but this was beyond anything she had ever seen before. There were two white pop-up canopies out on the front porch. Furniture in the house had been moved, dishes filled the sink and poured over onto the counter, and for all the mess that was there, there were things that should have been that weren't. According to court documents, her dad had a specific chair he sat in, what he called the captain's chair, and around his chair he always kept his things. You know how when someone has a specific spot they like to sit, they're important things like reading glasses, maybe their favorite cup, and say a phone charger or magazine or whatever it is that they're into is right there near their spot? Well, the captain chair was Jim's spot. And while his chair was still there, his personal things were not, like his medicine bag, a book bag that he kept packed with a change of clothes and other important things, a bug out bag if you will. None of that was there to include a Remington 1112 gauge shotgun that he always kept propped near the window. That gun was special to both Jim and Julie. It was the one she had shot a big old buck with, and her dad always kept it right there in that spot, but now it was gone. Julie asked Michael where all of her father's stuff was, and he told her that he had taken it with him when he left. 
That was interesting considering the fact that Michael Dixon had just told her that he wasn't there when her father had left, so she asked him how he knew that if he hadn't been there. He told her, I didn't mean I wasn't here, I was downstairs. And by downstairs, he met in the basement where he had been living for the past 18 months. She asked Dixon where he had taken his belongings. Like, was he expecting her to believe that her father was just wandering out there through the woods, carrying all of his possessions? And this dumbass said yes. When she asked Michael Dixon why he hadn't messaged her and told her that her father had just up and left and was now missing, I mean, after all, they were friends on Facebook and Dixon had messaged her in the past via Messenger. About things I'm sure were much more trivial than her father gathering his worldly possessions and walking off into the great wide unknown. According to Julie's testimony, Michael Dixon said, I don't know. As this conversation was happening, Julie noticed that Dixon kept looking in the direction of her father's 60-inch flat-screen TV, or at least where it used to be. The TV, like the gun, was gone, and Michael Dixon's story went from dumb to stupid when Julie asked him where the TV was and he told her that her father had taken it. So now she was supposed to believe that her 56-year-old father was lugging around backpacks, guns, and a 60-inch flat screen. At this point, Julie Whitaker had heard enough. She told Dixon that the sheriff was on his way and he should get the fuck off the property and not come back until she found her dad. Michael Dixon didn't even try to argue. Just as he turned to walk away, Julie remembered something that Keith Strickland had told her a few days earlier that he had gone by and the old lock for the barn had been shot off and a new lock had been put on. So she asked Michael for the new keys and he gave them to her. She made sure they were the right ones before he took off. Meanwhile, Michael and Melody were grabbing some of their belongings. They took their dog and dog food, but also a chainsaw. Apparently, Michael's VW Bug was already loaded down with things before Julie and the crew arrived. After gathering a few additional items, like arrows for, say, a crossbow, Michael and Melody hightailed it out of there. Julie went back to Carmela's and called police. Lieutenant Champ from the Hawking County Sheriff's Office arrived on scene at approximately 9.14 p.m. When he got there, Jim's mother Diane, daughter Julie, Dustin, Craig, and Keith were all there. They quickly filled him in on everything they had learned over the three weeks they believed at this point Jim had been missing. Julie gave the lieutenant a note that her father had actually written and emailed him the note Michael Dixon claimed he had found that Jim had supposedly written. The officer walked around the house and initially didn't see anything out of the ordinary. I mean, besides the fact that the house was a cluttered mess, there was no immediate sign that anyone had been hurt. While there was nothing screaming a crime had occurred, the officer just didn't have a good feeling about the situation. He had little more to go on than a cop's instinct and a worried family. But for him, that was enough. Jim Whitaker was entered into the system as a missing person and after spending two hours with the family, he went back to the station, completed his report, and assigned a detective to the now missing persons case. Back at the scene, Julie arranged for Craig and his girlfriend to stay the night at her dad's just to watch things. The following day, so that brings us to July 26, 2020, two detectives responded back to the Whitaker home, Lead Detective Robinson and his partner, Detective Kenner. 
It was now daylight, so they'd be able to take a better look around the house and the property. And that's when they found what appeared to be two drops of blood in the basement. At that point, they called off the search and filed for a search warrant. Why find blood and then call off a search? Well, it was simple. With nothing indicating that anyone had been harmed or was in imminent danger of being harmed, cops can't just search a person's house without a warrant. To get a warrant, you need probable cause that a crime has taken place. With Jim missing, everything they had gathered so far, and now drops of blood in a missing man's house, they had the probable cause they needed to be able to do a deep search of Jim's home. Unfortunately, though, even after the warrant was executed and the house was searched more thoroughly, they didn't find any other clues that would help them locate Jim. They did speak with Jim's daughters and learn that they had been tipped off as to where Michael Dixon's blue Volkswagen Beetle might be. The car had been spotted at the home of a man named Kenny Amerine, so they headed over there and bingo, there was the car. But there was no Michael Dixon, and Kenny Amerine claimed he didn't know where Dixon had gone. So the detectives photographed the car and continued on in their investigation conducting interviews, and doing all the things detectives do. They became aware of the fact that Michael Dixon actually had a warrant out of a nearby county for failure to appear. They wanted to talk to him, and now they knew if they found him, they'd get their chance. They could arrest him on that warrant. The heat on Michael Dixon was turned all the way up. But as it turned out, Dixon wasn't even crafty when it came to hiding out. The following day, on July 27th, at approximately 4 in the afternoon, the detectives dropped by Frank Species' house, Dixon's stepfather, and they got a two-for-one deal because both Melody and Michael were there. Michael Dixon was taken into custody, and right there at the scene, both he and Melody were questioned about where Jim Whitaker was. Let's start with Melody first. 18-year-old Melody Dixon told detectives that she hadn't seen Jim since the 5th of July. Her story matched her father's initial story to Julie for the most part. They left and came back and Jim was gone. The only real variation between the story Michael told Julie and what Melody was now telling detectives was that the 60-inch flat-screen TV wasn't taken at the same time Jim vanished, but sometime after. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, and neither does anything Melody said next. She went on to tell the detective that Jim was sad, depressed, and mad at one of his daughters. She brought up the note that had been found and said that at one point, Jim had actually predicted all this, telling her that there may be a time that they come home and find that he is gone. And when that happens, it's okay for them to continue to live at his house. Melody appeared twitchy and began answering questions she was never even asked, saying at one time that her and her father figured he just left and that Jim's friends advised them not to report him missing because he might not want to be found. Moments after saying she thought he had just up and left, she told the detective that she thought Jim had killed himself. And if you thought Melody's story was lacking in the common sense department, hold on to your drawers because Michael Dixon was about to outshine his daughter in the worst way possible. After Dixon was placed in cuffs, walked to a shady area of the yard, and Mirandized, he began not talking about his FTA warrant or why he was going to jail. Pretty much completely unprompted, Dixon began talking about, you guessed it, Jim Whitaker. Mind you, he wasn't present when Melody was questioned. 
He immediately began telling the detective that two days earlier, Jim's daughter had come down and told him that he had to leave Jim's property where he had been living, and that Jim had been gone since July 5th. He went on to say that he last seen him at about 3.30 that morning. They were working together on something in the garage, and Jim was talking to a woman he thought was named Tracy who lived in Tennessee. Maybe Jim had run off with Tracy from Tennessee. Because when he woke up that next morning, or afternoon, there was a piece of copper wire on the outside of Jim's bedroom door holding the door shut from the outside. He removed the wire, opened the door, and Jim was gone, and his gun was missing. That's all he could tell was missing. When asked where he thought Jim was, he responded, I wish I knew. He continued saying, while there's nothing to indicate that anything bad happened to him, he wonders where he is because Jim usually told him where he was going. Even if it was just right up the road and around the corner to the gas station, he would usually leave a note. The detective asked if there was any way they had gotten into an argument and something had happened. And Michael Dixon said no. He went on to explain that Jim was like a dad to him. And in the two years he'd been living with Jim, they'd only been in two arguments. He continued on and told the detective that he was worried because Jim had been depressed and talked about killing himself. Jim had also told him that there was a well somewhere in walking distance of his house in the middle of the woods that he'd never be found in. Dixon claimed he had walked all through the woods looking for that well or Jim. When asked about the TV, he told the investigator that Jim must have taken the TV because he didn't see how it was possible that anyone else would have taken it. And then he threw out a whole nother theory about a woman he claimed Jim had briefly dated. No, it wasn't Tennessee Tracy. This time, it was Arizona Andrea. Dixon claimed he had been there a while back when someone came by and shot at Jim's house in a drive-by, and it was all over Arizona Andrea. I do have to note here that there was a drive-by at Jim's place at some point. The details are fuzzy and I found no reporting that it was over a woman, but nonetheless, someone did shoot at Jim's home. The next story, however, I could not corroborate. Dixon claimed that about two or three years before he moved in, Arizona Andrea had abducted Jim Whitaker and taken him to Arizona and Jim had to escape. After throwing out his theory about Arizona Andrea, Dixon changed the subject again. A hell of a long time into this conversation, he finally brought up that supposed suicide note. He claimed he had found it either in or near a white cabinet in the house. Michael Dixon sure had a lot of stories to tell. No two the same. He was transported to the Hawking County Sheriff's Office and he'd soon be telling yet another new story. But unfortunately, we're running out of time. And while I'd usually say there is so much more to this story, in this case, I'll have to say there are so many more stories. But the truth that investigators later uncovered was more shocking and disturbing than anything Michael or Melody could conjure up. Join me next week for the conclusion of this case, same time, same place. In the meantime, you can find me on Instagram at least underscore of these or my Facebook at least of these podcast. You can get all your episodes ad-free just the way you like them for just $2 a month. 
And as a member of Patreon, you'll be the first to be notified when new tiers will be launched with exclusive episodes and a few bonus surprises. Head on over to patreon.com slash least of these to support the show today. Thank you for listening. Thank you for caring. If you know something, say something. And until next time, be good to each other.